everybody. Welcome back to the Field Craft Survival Podcast. I'm George, and with me for the ads is Austin. What's up, guys? Austin, how have you been? Good, man. Staying busy. This move damn near killed me. Oh, I know, man. This is this. Yeah, moving is not fun. It's brutal. I, I love it. The area, though, dude. This is one of the most. I mean, I've been all over the country, and this is one of the most beautiful places. Oh yeah, big time. I mean, it's it is so it's pretty. Yellowstone's so right pretty. down the road. We got Tetons yep. not far away. Yep, it's awesome. Got uh, Z- uh the what Zion? Zion. Yeah, yeah Zion's about four right hours here. away, three yeah. or four. I if, mean, it's, if you're everything's in, a day drive. Yeah, if you're remotely into anything outside and, and hiking and day hiking, camping and that stuff, this is the place to be. Oh yeah. So we are sponsored, and our first sponsor up today is Casey Highlights. Casey Highlights have been around for 50 years this year. So, I mean, you talk about, if you're a company you're around for 50 years, you're doing something right. Yeah, you're doing something right. You know, Mike Mike Hernandez and I went up and uh, saw their facility, and it's pretty legit, actually, man. There's a lot of, they have, it's really cool. They have it set up with all their heritage stuff. Um, Oh, yeah, They have, like, lights and pictures from back in the day. Yeah, Yeah. it's cool. I mean, it's it's like like everybody knows that. Light cover. You oh know yeah, what I mean? yep. you see that KC that that uh, yep. the, the, the smiley face, the, the yellow, yellow black yep. KC. Oh yeah. Yep. So, but now they have a they got a new light out that just came out. It's called the Flex LED lights. The KC Flex series LEDs are modular and customizable performance off road LED lighting platform. KC single, KC Flex duals, and KC Flex array LEDs provide you with a complete LED lighting solution that connects and stacks to your requirements. Custom uh, colored bezels allows you to personalize and match your vehicle build. So if you're looking for some, uh, I mean, there's a very versatile light. Check yeah. out the Flex light LEDs. I mean, you can build onto them. You can get bezels, anything you can. You for know? anything, not just cars. I've yeah. seen people putting them on, on enduro motorcycles, four-wheelers, oh, yeah. all that stuff. Yo, I saw a... Um, it was like a Honda Civic, and it had a light bar on the front of it <laughs> yesterday. Hey, yeah, if, I you're, mean, if you're about it, you're about it. Yeah, you know? especially if you're, I mean... At night, you want to see. You yeah. wanted the best light. So why especially not go to KC? Here. Yeah. yeah, especially out here. I mean, the KC highlights, they have everything from light bars to pods to rear to put in your, uh, you know, to reverse lights. They got rock lights to put in your wheel wells. If you're out at night uh, wheeling around or overland and whatever you need, KC highlights got you covered. So check them out at kchighlights.com and use code FIELDCRAFT, all one word, FIELDCRAFT, and save 10% on your entire order. So check them out, kchighlights.com. Next up, we have Aturo Tires. So if you go to aturo.com forward slash fieldcraft and you buy four of their Trailblade Series tires, you get a $75 gift card, $75 rebate gift card to either Bass Pro or Amazon. Just want to give you a some highlights on the Aturo Trailblade XT. So the Aturo Trailblade XT is a very cool looking new type of hybrid multi-terrain tire that cuts in the segments between the traditional MT and AT tires. The XT features the open shoulder and aggressive sidewall tread lugs of a mud terrain combined with the off-road, excuse me, off-road ability of an all-terrain. And the road in the road of feel of a, you know, you get that road of a highway feel underneath your tires while you're delivering high performance on both the trail as well as the road. You know, some of the highlights, the, the features of this tire has an aggressive, side, aggressive sidewall design inspired by real knife blades from Quartermaster Knives of Texas. The XT tire blends bold style with hardcore performance, offering a whole new look for SUVs, crossovers, and light trucks that truly lets you go your own way. So once again, check them out at Aturo.com 
Fieldcraft.com forward slash Fieldcraft. Get that rebate, $75 when you buy four Trailblade tires at Aturo.com forward slash Fieldcraft. Also, if you're in the store, you get an extra 25% discount at Aturo Gear Store with promo code Fieldcraft. So on checkout, if you're going to get some gear after you buy the tires and get your rebate, use code Fieldcraft to get 25% off. Next up, we have Killcliff. You like Killcliff, huh, Austin? I'm, I'm a junkie, man. I tell you what, I, I could drink those like water, man. I do drink those like water. <laughs> <laughs> I know. We're, we're, we're kind of low right now. I'm about to hit them up for some uh, real restock. I but know, they have, have uh, some withdrawals. Oh, yeah. They have that new flavor. They have that new flavor for mm, CBD. I got to get my hands on it. Can you guess it, what man. it is? Have you seen it? I haven't seen it yet. No, what is it? So they have a new flavor, and it's strawberry Ooh. flavor, and it's called Strawberry Days. Mm, that CBD is so, where it's at. Yeah, check them out at killcliff.com. They have the new CBD line. It has 25 milligrams of CBD in it. There's zero THC, hemp-infused recovery drink. Uh, they have the goat, which is grapeiest of all time, the new Strawberry Days, Orange Kush, and Mango Tango. So check them out. It's all clean energy, no sugar, electrolytes, B vitamins. They also support the Navy SEAL Foundation. So we're always about uh, supporting veteran-owned businesses and veteran-supported businesses as well. So check them out at uh, the, you know check out the Navy SEAL Foundation if you want to help that side of it. But Killcliff, check them out at killcliff.com. Use code Survival One Zero Survival One Zero and save ten percent on all your orders. So check them out at killcliff.com pick up some cbd drinks pick up some recovery they have the ignites all kind of flavors everything you need clean clean caffeine clean energy check them out killcliff.com code survival one zero last but not least we have triarch systems you can find them at triarchsystems.com they are one of the best gun rifle gear builders out there right now i mean austin you've uh checked out their triarch the the the, uh the tri 11 yeah tell me what you think about that mike and i have done a fair amount of content with that thing and i wish i could say that guys here at the company uh especially mike uh sorry man if you're listening but it's true but not delicate on guns they don't don't treat them like babies they're they're a tool they're a tool and, and they use them that way exactly and uh mike has beat the snot out of his guns and yeah. it, that thing goes and they keep going it's awesome and man. going and it's going awesome. yeah i mean they have everything you you want if you're looking for a gun you know they have the triarch rifle triarch rifles triarch glocks triarch 1911s and the triarch tri 11s you can either purchase them pre-built or build your own it all depends on what custom is you know what, what do you want on it what kind of triggers grips yeah. they've got everything style man, colors yeah so they cerakote they do all that stuff, all the all the good stuff. So this is like a rifle you'll buy. Well, this is a gun you'll buy once, one time. This yeah, is it, absolutely. You know, absolutely. Ra- Raul's the same way, man. He, you know, Raul is like, and if you know Raul, man, he he doesn't commit to any one thing. Yeah. But once he he got in with Triarch and started shooting their rifles yeah. and their pistols, oh yeah, he's oh, yeah. He, he, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah. He, he he came too. Yeah, I mean, he did for yeah. the pistols. He did. He did. I saw yeah. that because he had that. He, he got a new one. He did. I know it's he on had, his. Uh, if you can look on his, it's uh, all over his Instagram profile. Yeah. Yeah. But they have anywhere from, you know, they have, like I said before, rifles, pistols, things like that. But they also have the optics, the suppressors, the gear. They have services that you can go to. So check them out, triarchsystems.com, and order yourself a triarch. doesn't matter. Just order a triarch. You tell people you have a triarch, and they're going to be like, oh, damn, I know about triarch. No, man. It's like you're, you're part of the elite now. Yeah, exactly. 
I have a Triarc, no big deal. No big deal. I mean, I don't. But I shoot it, but I don't like, you know. I, I just, I I haven't gotten in the good graces of the company, I guess. I know. Yet. I, I got to do more podcasts. I got to do more podcasts. Chris, if you're listening, my man Austin needs hooked up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you heard him, Chris. You heard but yeah, him. check them out, triarcsystems.com. We do have a coupon code. It is Fieldcraft, all one word, Fieldcraft, and you save 5% on your entire build. That's a nice chunk for a, a gun build. It is. It's a really nice chunk. It's a good investment. So, but hey, who do we have on this podcast? We have Cody Lundine. Cody Lundine. Oh my gosh! And dude. we had the great Kevin Estella yeah. interviewing him. So it's kind of like you have two survival experts, two OGs Gurus, in the game, yeah. going you know going back and forth with stuff. And we, and we do have some ex- exclusives that Cody has never uh, talked about before. Yeah, so it was wild. It's it was interesting. I was outside of the door while they were doing it and i'm like yeah. i was outside the door just just listening like 15 <laughs> minutes and i walk yeah. away because like, i didn't want to like cough or make a noise yeah. there, so i had to go work back in support for the uh oh you were uh, doing the, the bug, bug out course, course. Yeah. yeah i was i was helping out and i had a block of instruction i was teaching when they were doing the podcast and i was jealous man i, oh, we, yeah. I got to sit down and talk with him for about 20 minutes beforehand yeah i grew up watching him on oh the Discovery yeah i, Channel, I remember you know? watching like, him. it was cool yeah, it was like, awesome the guy with the bare feet it's like oh right like how are you doing that i know oh, man that's it's crazy, crazy. It's crazy. but yeah check it out cody lundine enjoy all right we're here with the fieldcraft survival podcast and today we've got a real special guest uh mr cody lundine himself cody how are you, brother? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Ah, this is an absolute pleasure. So I, I want to catch the listeners up to speed here. Um, I think the first time that I think most of the, the listeners will recognize you from was from your time on, on television. But way before that, you've been in this game a long time. And it was actually in the pages of American Survival Guide when I was just like a wee little tyke that... uh I saw you and I'm like, who is this dude? He's got charcoal on his face. I think you were holding up a, a, a like a like a, a river cane stringer of fish, you know, for one of yeah. the photos. And you had you know shorts on and you're barefoot. I'm like, this dude's a badass. And then about seven years later, you're on the cover of Backpacker magazine. You had a nice full spread and you're talking about signaling and, and whatnot. And then a couple of years later, or maybe not even a year later, you had 98.6 degrees, the art of keeping your ass alive. And I was like, this guy's onto something. And, and a lot of what you carried in that book or what you demonstrated in that book, I was like, this is what I need to carry. So let, let's talk about you even before the, the days of American Survival Guide. Like 1991 was when you first decided to go barefoot? No, um, I think it was, I have a article from the Prescott Courier because I started my school in Prescott, Arizona. And it's dated 1990. And I'm carrying my sandals in my hand in the photo walking back to my wiki up because I lived in the woods for a couple of years. So around 1990, you're close, but that's, I have photographic proof. That's when I first started dabbling in it. Yeah. Now I know if I were to tell my parents, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to go barefoot in the woods. They'd probably look at me like crazy. Uh, your friends, your loved ones, what did they, what was their reaction when you said, I'm going barefoot? I don't remember. It's been so long ago that, you know, I, I really, I'm not sure anyone's ever asked me that question, but I don't know. I, I just it never, if someone freaked out about that and thought that was insane, I blocked it out of my memory, I guess. I don't have any, any memory of that. Now, the last name Lundin, uh, where's your family from? Lundin is Swedish. So I'm multi, multicultural regarding uh, Scandinavian European ancestry. 
but my dad and my grandpa was full Swede, so that that's Swedish per se. Interesting. Uh, you know, I, I think Lundin, I think now Swedish. I'm now I'm picturing barefoot Viking. You know, that that totally is like even a, a more interesting you know persona that I'm surprised a lot of other people didn't tap into. But uh, have you ever been to Sweden? Um, I know I've been to Norway, but believe it or not, I want to, but I've never been to Sweden. But I'm way, way into the Vikings. And I did warrior archetype studies in college, and and so I'm very much into you know my ethnicity and try to put that you know onto other people as well because with the braids and stuff, people always playing Indian, and that's bullshit. You know, I'm playing me, I'm playing my ancestors, and so what I try to do with my students when I'm teaching primitive living skills courses, which is very different than other stuff we might talk about regarding survival training, is to get them tuned into their own ethnicity. And they'll find out if they're German or if they're Italian or whatever, that we were all doing the same stuff back in the day regarding making fire with sticks or whatever. And, you know, it's all the same stuff when you go back far enough, as common sense usually suggests it would be. Now, the, the Swedish part of your family, were you like southern Sweden or were you like further north where like the Sami are? Uh, no, not, not Sami. I think there was two inland lakes there, and I think we were pretty much probably just regular Swedes. I've met one Sami guy, and they're the hardcores. They were pushed out by the Vikings. So the Sami people were marginalized back in the day and pushed into the territory they have now, which was very unforgiving, like a lot of Native people's world, because it was, it's the, ter the turf they're in now is hard to live in. It didn't used to be that way, but the Vikings pushed them out. Damn Vikings. Damn Vikings. <laughs> um, you know, what's interesting about Sweden, I don't know if you ever did any research on it, but they have what they call right to access, where like you can literally camp anywhere in the country as long as you essentially leave no trace. And you, I believe it's like two or three days. You can, you can say, I'm camping on this, this property over here. To the point where I believe it's even private property. You can camp as long as you're respectful for the land. The, the government has essentially put this in place so you can just go camping wherever you want. And it's absolutely amazing. Yeah. We, we have similar things, right? The Forest Service, you know, national parks and whatever. So, but I didn't know that about Sweden. Again, I need to go there and check it out. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> Let's go kick, collect some lingonberries and, and, yeah. and blackberries and things like that. Um, so now you're 1990. Let, let's let's try to follow this timeline. 1990, you go barefoot, and you've been an educator a long time, and you've been starting all these different programs with Prescott Valley College, right? Or was it Prescott? No, I mean I've done. I I worked with Yavapai College in town, which I still do. I founded Prescott College's program in 1993, and I founded my Aboriginal Living Skills School in 1991. 91. So this Correct. is year 29. I'll be finishing my 29th year at the end of the season. Yeah, correct. Do you have any advice for anyone if they're searching out like a survival school, right? Like obviously there, there's all different genres of survival. There are guys that are the hardcore military types. There's the, the super ultralight, you know, leave no trace REI backpacker types, the primitive skills, schools types. Do you have any advice for anyone that's listening right now saying like, Hey, I know you want to take a, take up a survival class. It's expensive, most likely. This is the best way you can maximize your investment. Well, it depends on what the, the student wants. You know, there's a lot of, 
Oh, I mean, I have a whole thing on my webpage about choosing a good instructor, and, and number one on it, or should be, is like, do they have a resume? If they don't have a resume, run, you know, because if you're willing to pay good money to trust someone with your life that doesn't have a fucking professional resume, what are you thinking? But as far as context, a lot of survival instructors mix context, and not in a good way. So if, if there's someone out there as an example that's teaching a survival course, modern survival, but they're introducing Bodril. They don't understand the complex and fine motor skills going on in the adrenaline dump and what happens when someone's scared that they're going to die, which is what everyone's headspace is in a survival situation. You're looking at death. So context is much more important to me than content because context defines all content. And where I'm going with this is if you're in the game long enough and you research, you'll find which instructors and in schools haven't been around long enough to figure that out. And why train with them? Why train with someone who's a beginner when it's your life? So, you know, do you want primitive living skills? Do you want modern survival skills? Do you want urban preparedness? Are you looking for more homesteading? Those are all different genres that overlap in the realm of self-reliance, but the training intention is very different. And the problem with some schools and instructors, they don't recognize that. That's dangerous. Because if they're teaching you out-of-context skills and you don't probably know what you want anyway as a new student, then the blind's kind of leading the blind. And that's getting more and more common with nonsense television shows. Everyone's got a blog. Sorry, everyone's got a podcast, right? Everyone's got what they got because you don't need shit for money to do X, Y, and Z nowadays. Back in the day, you needed to have credibility because no one knew about you unless you had a name or something like that. But now with Facebook, I think these are good things. Social media, you know, it's a double-edged sword. But there's a lot of people that are pretending to be survival instructors that look good in copy that are not the real thing. And how do you tell? Again, I have a choosing a good instructor thing that has like 15 different points. But really, it's on the onus of the student. If you're going to a doctor for a surgical procedure are you going to that physician based on how many YouTube videos they have? You know, if you look at survival training in the context of your fucking life is on the line, then you as a student need to do due diligence and research to find out who in the hell you're training with. That's the student's responsibility because you can't count on the instructor being honest, especially when there's a lot of money and fame in the way. So let's go back to what you just said with the bow drill, right? Like why are certain schools teaching the bow drill? Like if I wanted to really maximize my, my students' ability to, to make a fire, I mean, in your book, I was surprised when I saw, oh, carry a lighter. And I think, I think on the, the front of your Mora, you actually had an electrical taped, right? And it's like, why not carry a 99 cent investment that makes a thousand one second fires, you know? Or we can do the bow drill, which I understand like the bow drill is definitely cool. There, there's less, probably less than one half of 1% of the entire world's population that can do it. But I mean, if you really had the interest of your, your student safety in mind, give them a lighter first, right? Teach from the highest methodology back until they hit that set point where they can't go any further. And then that's when you start coaching them, right? And you get them to, to embrace the skills and realize that the bow drill is not the answer for everything. The lighter is not the, always the answer for everything. So I, I think that's super, super important. And I think that uh, not a lot of people realize that, you know, because the bow drill sexy. It's like I can rub sticks together in theory, right? Well, context requires training to understand context. 
content doesn't require, require any training. Any producer in New York City can Google content, and that's what they do. For the TV shows, you'll have a producer with zero outdoor experience that sits in an office somewhere in some city or whatever and Googles content for their quote-unquote host to do, right? And if that host isn't a real survival instructor, then they'll go, okay, we'll do that. Context is the most important thing. It's the intention. You ask me, how does someone tell if there's a real deal, right? And who, who should I train with? The, the important thing is the intention of the training. What do I want? What does the student want? Then comes the context. And then the content is dead last. So based on the situation, I'm assuming, I mean, I'm assuming there's a lot of military guys that listen to this. Am I wrong? Oh, that, oh, there's definitely. I mean, okay. I'm not a military guy myself, so, uh, but I'm I know not, the... I'm not yeah. either, but I can imagine that military guys are way into combat because that's what their training is. So if I asked a military guy, what's your favorite weapon? If, if this person's good, they would say, for what? For what context are we going into a close quarter raid? Am I a sniper? Is it jungle? Is it desert? And that's the kind of questions I get a lot. What's your favorite knife? You know, and that's, that's from a, a content-based thinking that's not only a, a disservice to the profession, it's very dangerous. Context always defines all content. And the only way you get context is doing it, is being out in the field. Any Yahoo can go buy content off the internet and train you in content. There's a lot of survival courses that are held outdoors when it might be a park with a porta potty. And that's fine for a certain for a certain thing. But there's also the contextual need to be out in real wilderness into real backcountry, you know, and then have the student move through that and gather from that environment instead of just bringing a bunch of cedar from the hardware store to make your bow drill sets with. You know what's interesting? You you bring up, oh, what's your favorite knife? And I can't tell you how many times I've had people say, what's the best backpack? And it's that same idea. What's going to fit me isn't going to fit, you know, someone who's five feet tall and a hundred pounds. So you can't apply a one size fits all. You, you really have to ask a thousand questions, right. And establish all this criteria. And there is no one correct answer for everyone. And there are multiple correct answers, but you have to find the correct answer. That's best for you. Um, you know, you bring up the, uh, the porta potty. And I think something that's really interesting, I don't think the, the readers understand is so many survival schools only teach like 72 hour scenarios, right? Nine out of 10 are hopefully going to be resolved in 72 hours. But I think a real consideration is how do you do long-term camping? How do you do long-term living in the great outdoors? The latrine is, is something that could wipe out a, a population in a camp if it's not properly maintained, right? Sanita, sanita, uh, you know, sanitation needs. What are some of the long-term considerations that people just aren't thinking about right now? Well, again, you've asked a massive question. I mean, what do you, can you narrow that? I mean, my God, do you, can you narrow that down a bit? Sure. Yeah. So, so if we, if we go with like the, the basics that everyone talks about, right? Like the rule of threes and we talk about, uh, having enough fuel for your fire, having enough food to feed people, long-term water needs, food procurement, things like that. Um, I mean, something that we do every day is, is simply using the latrine or using our bathrooms or whatever. Um, what is something that's a long-term need 
that is just not talked about in the, the, the survival circle. You know, like people, they, they look right past it because they, they're focusing too much on the short term. Yeah, you, you hit probably one thing on the head. I mean, very, very few people talk about, you know, how do we go to the bathroom? I mean, we talk about how to go to the bathroom in every course I do at my school. Why? Because really lack of sanitation is the biggest killer right now, right now, not 1800, of any place, of any other instance. I mean, even more than all the wars put together, lack of sanitation kills hundreds of thousands of people every year usually babies, little kids, and the elderly through diarrhea and dysentery. So as a survival instructor, if I didn't talk about one of the biggest causes of death, that's a mistake. When I introduce people into pristine wilderness for multi-day courses and don't have them, you know, don't train them how to go to the bathroom, that's on me. So it's the short term of keeping us safe in the field. Where do you put your poop? It's the long term of like you're, you know, talking about of, you know, grid down, we're doing latrine trenches in our backyard and there's limited space. And it's just basic respect. You know, there was the Bosnian-Croatian conflict and I think it was the 80s. The pe- whoever was killing who, they were running to the woods, living in the mountains, and they were just pooping in the creek. And other people's babies from the same village were dying downstream of diarrhea and dysentery. So we still don't know. You know, picture America. We all have these gleaming toilets and no knowledge about sanitation. The average human being puts about a half a pound of fecal matter per day. So if you have a half a pound of poop per individual and the grid goes burp and we we don't have our sanitation grid anymore, you have hundreds of millions of people in the United States of America alone that don't understand where to put their poop or their pee. Now, if you want a raging comeback of an epidemic of different weird diseases, that's it. So, you know, sanitation, hygiene, um, the stuff we do every day is not talked about. I don't know other courses that train in it, you know, and it doesn't need to be elaborate. It's just like, here's how we safely go to the bathroom in the field, you know, and then you can share this information with whoever. That's one. Um, long-term living, um, really, you know, thermoregulation is king. You know, it runs our cars. You know, everything's temperature sensitive on the planet. You know, if you have a passacillar chicken coop, you can have more eggs. If you have, you know, a water-cooled car and you don't have a radiator, your engine blows up. If your core body temperature deviates from 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, 37 degrees Celsius, in hot or cold weather, it's hyper or hypothermia, it's bad. So I'm way into, since most of us live in town, is a sustainable home, you know? It's like something people can do that they're not thinking about is, you know, why am I paying this several hundred dollar utility bill? So some of your survival training might be spending the next stimulus check on re-insulating or adding insulation to the home because insulation keeps the cocoa hot and the Kool-Aid cold. Insulation will help your home in hot weather and cold weather. How unsexy. Right, but insulation is what prevents lack of thermoregulation and hypo and hyperthermia, among other things. There are five ways the body loses and gains heat: convection, conduction, radiation, evaporation, and respiration. So, you know, long-term, people's homes are woefully unprepared to be off the grid. Right, most people's homes, if you turn the power off, would be an icebox or a sweatshop. 
So to answer your question in something we can all relate to about the building we live in, about the building we spend most of our life in, about the building we go home and see our kids and whatever, if that thing is vulnerable, try not to make it as vulnerable as it is. And remodels can be a, a real bitch. I'm not saying do that. They can be expensive and not cost effective for something like passive solar design. But most people, with few exceptions, hey, maybe let's let's put some you know insulation in the attic or whatever. That's how boring and blasé it can get because usually Murphy doesn't care about how sexy stuff is. Because if you think about a home that's now off the grid for a thousand different reasons that Murphy could throw at you, when your home is too cold or too warm, you use more of your survival supplies. Oh, here we are back at Fieldcraft, right? He's talking about survival skills again. I always fucking was. You know, so <laughs> if my if my home is out of control temperature-wise, I'm eating more food. If it's cold, I'm eating more of my survival food. I'm drinking more of my stored water if it's too hot. You know, see how it's all about thermoregulation, man. And so when you dial in as much as you can your home... I have a pretty thermoregulated home, it frees you up. And that's that's really a, a, a profound thing that very few people understand. Why? Because they have grid power for now. Yeah, we live in a weird time. Like like right now we're in the middle of this COVID pandemic. And, you know, what, are the, what was the first thing that people ran out to buy? It was toilet paper. You know what I mean? Like we didn't even understand this pandemic and everyone was literally worried about wiping their ass. You know, but I think it was a great run for people to to really do a no bullshit assessment. Like, am I prepared? Do I have the, the gear at home? But then also it was a great run as a society to like say, all right, how are people going to act? Are we going to cooperate with one another? I mean, you've got bottles of Purell that during the height of the pandemic, they were going for 20, 30, $40 when you can normally buy them for like $5, you know? So, uh, I just think we're we're living in bizarre times. And if this thing resurges, which they're saying it's going to, I mean, what's your prediction now that we've we've gone through it once? I mean, are are you gonna are we gonna see another run on toilet paper? Are we gonna see people I mean, we're already seeing them stocking up on guns. Um, but I mean, are people gonna go out and buy more and more, you know, bandages and beans and and, and you know, resources like that? Like what's your what's your take? What do you think's gonna happen? I don't know. That's my official position on it. But I, from what I know about human nature, uh, I mean, clearly there's a, we have the most cases of COVID at this point in time of any place in the world per demographic. Clearly we've screwed up um, for a variety of reasons that unfortunately, if we talked about it, would become political. Sure. When this is a health thing, this is called a disease. Yeah, it's that's not, been it's not made. Democrat or Republican. Correct. It's, the, it's the, a human The issue. disease doesn't give a damn what, what party you're yeah. from, and I don't either. I'm way into common sense and leadership, and that's what's not happening right now. As you know, Arizona's now reinsurging from screwing up by opening too soon. We're a hot spot. We were world news just a month ago, world news in a bad way about what not to do. So clearly, if people know what to do, they're not doing it. Human nature being what it is, um, I love America. I love our country dearly. And I love the planet because we're all on the same planet. And I love our country uh, for the freedoms we at least think we have. (laughs) 
and, and, and that we'd still have, hopefully. But when I see that get in the way of like, you know, I ain't going to wear a mask because it ruined, you know, that's not, you know, it's like, really? Yeah, you know? my, my freedoms. Yeah, it's like your freedom to infect someone that kills my grandmother or whatever. So I think when you looked at this worldwide, the countries that had it locked down the quickest towed the line. And someone could say, well, they, we, they don't have our freedom. Well, shut up and just listen to what I'm saying here. Any, and I'm, I'm reaching here, but I'm, I think of a well-functioning tribe in the wilderness back in the day as like a highly skilled military unit. Everyone knows a little bit about everything, like which end of the gun goes boom, hopefully. But then there's specialists within that tribe of indigenous peoples or special forces warfare, warfare personnel. Everyone toes the line altruistically for the benefit of their brothers and sisters to get the fucking job done. Doesn't matter how you feel about X, Y, and Z. You're going to do it because Johnny and Tom and Mary depend on you. And I wished in this country that our sense of doing the right thing and patriotism was reflected in taking care of each other more than, than this pissing battle that's caught into about if I, if I wear a mask, I'm more Democrat. They're just nonsense. Yeah. So when I see something like a disease that's, that's hard, I realize this is, a, this is a, we haven't had this happen in about a century but when you think about what people have been asked to do, stay home and watch more TV, binge eat, binge watch, wear a piece of fabric over your face. I'm not discounting the people that have lost loved ones. I know people that have lost loved ones. But really, you know, no one's firing on you. You're not starving. If, if, you, look, if you look and read survival stories like I've been doing for a very long time, and you realize what a human being and what human nature can do to survive, and what we're being asked to do, stay home and put a mask on, and we have people kicking a fit and pouting, we have a seriously spoiled nation of pussies who just, come on, when you look at what warriors have done throughout time to help their tribe out, when you look at what the sacrifices people have made and what they've gone through, if you read survival stories about what someone can do when they set their mind, when someone says, I don't want to wear a piece of fabric over my face to go to the big box store to buy a pizza, I don't have any tolerance for that shit. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You, you, you bring up tribe, and tribe is so important. Uh, a lot of people struggle for a long time to find who they would consider their tribe, and they think that... A tribe is, a lot of people have this misconception, a tribe is only the people that are related to you, your, your clan, your kin, your, your family. Um, you know, one important aspect of a true tribe is it's merit-based, right? Like the, the strongest are possibly going to be the protectors. The wisest are going to be the educators. Uh, you know, perhaps the person that's the, the elder is most likely going to be the leader. But we've gone so far from assigning jobs to people based on their ability to just a legal system where it's like, oh, let's make everyone this. What's your take on, on participation trophies? What do you mean by that? You know, like, so little Johnny goes to uh, peewee football, right? And little Johnny is, you know, benched for the entire season. Um, but little Johnny gets the award at the end of the season that he was the you know, a good football player. Like we have a lot of things in society where people are just given credit for something that they haven't done. You know, they're there and they, they've earned, 
the artificial respect by having a trophy. Like, hey, you're part of the team. Here you go. Here's a trophy. Good job for being here. But they haven't done anything. Yeah. Um, as, a, as someone who's in, very interested in leadership, I think that's an unfortunate thing. At the same time, it's important not to totally screw with little Johnny's head. Little Johnny shouldn't have the trophy if little Johnny didn't earn it, but there should be some context in there about what little Johnny's good at because leadership is about bringing people together and cooperating. And if you want Lord of the Flies in the wilderness, that's a great way to kill everybody. So one thing a leader, there's many things a leader would have to do in a survival situation is to unite. The main thing is to unite, even if the leader takes a hit on whatever, like as an example, I might have a client who is having a hard time hiking out of a canyon and but they're too proud to admit that they would need to take a rest break, I'll take it. I'll take that on me and say, okay, I want to stop and do this. Why? When I see them huffing and puffing. So I take care of my students because that's my job. Yeah, you're more of a mentor at that point. You're well, not, not it's, just a teacher. It's, it's, it is what it is, but I think that people need to earn what they have at the same time. Um, I'm going to try to find the good attributes of everyone I work with for the benefit of the tribe. And there's lots of different ways that leadership plays out in the field, and a lot. We could spend an entire conversation of what-ifs about what that really means, especially regarding stress. And any survival instructor should understand that survival is 90% psychology. Most survival instructors are into content and methodology Mm -hmm. and that's important but not if they don't realize the soft skills which will largely overtake the hard skills because you're dealing with people in a survival situation you're dealing with living breathing people that are all different so my training what i do is the three p's and they must be adhered to one is the physics physics heat loss and gain hypohyperthermia, dehydration, how does the body lose and gain heat, the, the physics of what really happens and, and what makes sense as far as training and gear. The other thing is psychology, how people think, how you know what people do when they're scared or stressed, and that ties in also to the physiology of the human body. It's amazing how many people are survival instructors, quote unquote, that don't have any medical experience whatsoever. Quit fucking faking my job. Because if you don't understand how a human body works, you shouldn't be into human survival training. That's like going to a truck mechanic that doesn't understand how an engine works. So the three Ps, definitely psychology, physiology, and physics are mandatory in any survival instruction. And any of those can take precedence at any one time. They're mutable. They're not in any hierarchical order. People love hierarchy. They want control. And I understand that because a survival situation is about being out of control. It's scary. The unknown is always scary. The unknown is the universal fear. And that's why the mother of all fears, if you look cross-culturally, is the dark. Because the dark personifies the things that we can't see, that we don't know about, that could hurt or kill our family. So the survival instructor needs to know how to pick from those three Ps based on the situation at hand, the client crisis at the time, the monsoon thunderstorm moving in, or whatever that is. And the only way that happens 
is a lot of time in the field to understand that context. Damn. I, I feel like every every time that we we start off on one one topic, I'm just sitting back here and I'm like, wow, that's a talking point. That's a talking point. I mean, there's so much to be said about this genre. Um, you know, you, you brought up a book, you know, in just that last explanation, Lord of the Flies, probably one of the greatest books I've ever read. I'm, I'm a big William Golding fan. And uh, I'll tell you, that's an amazing book about tribe. Have you heard of the book Two Old Women? Of course. Fucking amazing book, right? Like, and you were talking also about the idea that everyone in the tribe needs to know their worth. Everyone needs to know their value. And there is definitely, if you read that book, Two Old Women, if you can't walk away from reading that book without recognizing, wow, those women had a knowledge base that the tribe took for granted, you know? And there's an expression when, when an elderly person passes away, a library closes forever. Um, is there someone that has passed away that you wish you could just tap into their brain right now and be like, Hey man, what was that like? Yeah, there is. Um, I'm before I get into that, I'm wondering what edition of two old women that you read, because that used to be one of my books I would require for a college in the nineties. And the author who, as you know, is native American changed up the book and the part that she changed it was it was in i've 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 had that book long enough to know that 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 it was altered and the original manuscript they were very they being the tribe were very concerned in the winter boreal area yes about other tribes yes and other tribes meaning they were on the menu called cannibalism and this woman's tribe got real pissed at the author, the woman, and said, would you please not reference that as a part of our, you know, and I understand the embarrassment of cannibalism potentially, but this woman got pressure to whitewash, pardon the phrase, to get the cannibalism out of the picture because it was a black mark on all tribes that they had to resort because the wintertime could be so tough where you were eaten on other people. And I found that fascinating, one, because cannibalism is fairly common if you look at survival stories, and two, that, that, um, that it would be whitewashed out. I understand it, but I think it was a disservice because it, 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 it negates, okay, we have indigenous people that were born here, living off the land from birth, that have a hard time in the wintertime, which is a time of death for even a lot of animals. What does that say about us gringos that want to go out and do a winter survival course and whatever? So it further kind of blotted out the truth about how difficult the environment can be to procure anything regarding calories when all those calories are in hibernation or the leaves have gone or whatever. Wintertime is a, a time of wintertime is a scary, scary time if you're trying to be out on the land. Now your question, I just lost a, my, one of my greatest mentors. Um, Morris Kohansky mm. died a few months ago. Legend. Yeah, and he was one of my, not only did I try to copy everything Morris did in content, but he was a master teacher. And I went and trained with Morris a long time ago. I think it was 89 or, or some, it was, it was, 
either late 80s or early 90s. And that man, I brought up a bundle of seep willow for making handrail fires and a case of tuna fish to trade for him. And he spent three weeks of his time with me one-on-one when very few people really knew who Moores was back in the day. And I had a blast. And so I was lucky enough to, in the first few years of me wanting to make this a profession, to be under the tutelage of a professional that not only was really, really good in his bioregion, he had really high ethics and, and just was a, a really beautiful man. You know, he was an example, not just in content, but he was an example about how would, I would want to treat a student, how I would teach that student, his rapid-fire machine gun ability to whittle a pair of snowshoes while talking about hypothermia at the same time, while playing a snare drum or God knows what he, what he would do. But when you think about that, we all have mentors. There's a lot of people out there that claim they've invented this, that, or the other thing. They're full of shit because everyone has a mentor in any profession out there. And a real person with integrity will tell you who that mentor was out of respect and out of honesty. And he was one of my greatest. And, um, and he was uh, really uh, just an incredible guy and really loved teaching and really loved uh, learning. I remember him saying, if I had a second life, I'd be a scholar. And his, his <laughs> books in his house, he had so many books, he thought they would just double his insulation because all his walls were lined with books. He, I helped him arrange his books, and he had other buildings he built for his books. He, mailed, he, he built buildings for his books. Um, and just he took me to the University of Alberta when I was there, and we bought a bunch of books in the library because he used to teach there at the University of Alberta for their outdoor program. What a guy, you know, and what a professional, and what a knowledgeable person, and what a kind person, and what a lack of tolerance for bullshit, and what a low ego type of guy. I can't say more good things about him. And is it his? Is it that he was old school? Is it that he was from that generation? I hope not. Because if, 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 if being a new generation means you don't value integrity, that you'll rip off your students, that you're an asshole, and that you have this dick measuring contest going on with, with this profession like it can be, I don't want that. I know that it's, it's sacred. When you deal with keeping people alive, that's a sacred responsibility. That's a very high sacred responsibility. And most people don't look at it that way. They look at, let's make money first. Yeah, paycheck. Yeah, money's great. Okay, I, I don't have any problem making money, and I expect to be paid for my services as a professional because that's, that's normal. That's, 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 that's okay. I don't have a problem with money, but I, I do take issue with a profession that so, so demands trust, that this student is trusting you with their life, with the information you're going to give to them, that they're going to share to loved ones and et cetera. And if a survival instructor has no honor or doesn't honor that, they really should not be doing this profession. You know, Morris Kachansky, uh, 
and that was a correct pronunciation, right? Kochansky or Kohansky? I think it's Kohansky. I Kohansky. say both, and yeah. he's corrected me, and then I think he just gave <laughs> up. I mean, he wrote the book Bushcraft. For anyone that's listening, you've never heard the name of that book. It's it's phenomenal. It needs to be in your your survival bushcraft, great outdoors, fieldcraft library. It's bottom line. Uh, I mean, a, a real amazing individual, and I never had the pleasure of meeting him, but his book is laid out so logically and so in a manner that's so easy to understand. Um, now, Richard Graves was another guy who had a book named Bushcraft, an Australian guy. What's your definition of bushcraft? Hmm. Um, because, you know, and I, and I say that because I know people will say, well, bushcraft is survival. And then people will say, well, no, survival is an emergency. Like, I want to hear from Cody Lindine. Like, what is bushcraft? Well, I, I, I was invited... I talked to Moore's before he died, and I asked him that question, and I didn't tape it, and I should have. Um, I was invited to the last gathering that was largely held in her, his honor in Canada as the keynote speaker, and the Canadian government would not let me in because when I was a teenager, I sold drugs. And so apparently, I'm still a reckless, you know, they're still holding that against me and I, the main reason I wanted to go was obviously teach and share information, but to see Morse one last time because he wasn't doing very well. And I asked Randy Bruce, I asked a bunch of other people that put that gathering. It's like, what do you think bushcraft is? And no one could really answer me. So um, I was trying to remember what Moore's, and I think Moore's even hemmed and hawed. I think... Uh, I don't know, I don't have a, obviously, I don't have a pat example of what a definition is. What I see bushcraft being is, um, I don't want to say, it could be anything from arts and crafts. It could be like, I'm making a willow doily, you know, or, you know, it could be something <laughs> like that to maybe it's the word craft in there to more of an immersive, uh, Moore's called it wilderness living skills. And what he meant by that was it wasn't potentially a modern survival situation where you needed to get out and signal for rescue, but it was involving nature in maybe a longer-term base camp. Like, let's take these saplings and we'll make a recliner and then make... It was more like what I've seen in Canada about using natural things for more of a living thing, not an emergency like, let's get the hell out of here, the Jeep broke down. So, and that's the name bushcrafting. Bush, we know, is the outdoors, wherever you are. Bushveld, of course, is, is, um, is African, South African. There's that Richard Graves you mentioned. But to me, I don't want to say it's more touchy-feely, um, but it's it's not necessary for survival, in my opinion. Um, because, again, when we go back to context, if I'm in a modern survival situation, the first thing I want to do is get the hell out. I don't give a damn about your bushcraft. You know, I want to run on the road, get throw myself in front of the rescue jeep driving by, whatever it is. Someone doesn't need a lot of knowledge of the wilderness to get out of an outdoor survival situation. Now, let's see how many shit comments I get on that one. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is there's regular people out there 
that if they leave a 5W game plan with people they love and they call 911 here in Arizona, search and rescue is dictated by the sheriff of each county. Yavapai County is what we're sitting in right now. You know, someone who's your Aunt Martha, who's 73 year old, might have no knowledge of what kind of tree she's sitting under, but she did what was right to then have SAR, search and rescue, come and bail her out of that situation. No bushcraft required. Bushcraft is a deeper understanding of the natural world, and I think that's important. Uh, one for long-term survival, for sure, and also just enjoyment of what you're walking into, and also potentially to mitigate an outdoor survival situation. But Morris used wilderness living skills, even though he, he said, I wanted to use bushcraft, but the, the guy took it, so he had northern bushcraft <laughs> on there. So, um, I, um, and notice when you look at, I haven't read Moore's book in, oh God, 25 years or it's been a long time, but it's a classic, like you say. But if you look at his book in there, it's a bushcraft book. You know, he has more stuff that's more applicable to a multi-day long-term stay in the wilderness than let's get the hell out of here. You know, knife craft and how you use that knife and sharpen that knife and different shelter lays and very articulate things, masterful things on fire. That's not required to get yourself out of a down and dirty survival situation. I use the term primitive living skills. And I recently started using the term bushcraft only because friends of mine told me, told me it has a higher demographic value on social media with pings that people might want to take courses at my school. So I started, I folded two or three years ago to use the term bushcraft because everyone seems to be using the term bushcraft. Primitive living skills is what I used for years. And maybe we'll talk about that. That's yeah. making fire with sticks, yeah. et cetera. Totally different than modern outdoor survival skills. Could be totally different from urban preparedness. Bushcrafting, I see that long-term, long-term wilderness living. I think bushcraft is what um, I have friends that uh, do classic camping books. Dave Westcott is one of them. Um, they wrote books on classic camping, Seton, and all the masters from back in the late 1800s and early 1900s you know, that did campcraft, that used, okay, they have a piece of canvas, but they're going to take these willow saplings to do X, Y, and Z. That's bushcraft. You know, that's wilderness living skills. That's taking out the rudimentary things someone needs, but using and depending upon the natural world to then flesh out that base camp to make it what you'd be like if you were camping with Teddy Roosevelt, wherever. Oh my God, dream. Yeah. But, you know, there was no big camping store back in the day. You know, it's like Petzolt was climbing the Tetons in cowboy boots. Yeah, people didn't realize that Abercrombie and Fitch back in the day sold shotguns. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, like so Abercrombie and Fitch, like they used to be kind of like Sears and Roebuck, and you could actually buy firearms, fly fishing gear. And then somewhere in like the 90s, I'm sure some corporate guy bought it and had a whole bunch of like hot chicks and hot dudes and whatever and dogs and I don't know, black yeah. and white photos of people that want to be Instagram models before Instagram, you know, that was what Abercrombie became. But back in the day, it was like actually a legitimate outfitter. Right. You know? Well, back in the day, survival training and primitive camping was actually a legitimate yeah. outfitter before the YouTube and the Facebook and the commercialization of the craft itself. Have you seen the, the YouTube videos of, and I believe they're in Malaysia. These are the guys, they're, they're definitely in, you know, uh, I won't say primitive. I don't like using that term primitive to describe someone unless they are truly living the way of the past. Um, but 
these are guys who are living in the jungle and they're making huts out of mud and then like they make these elaborate swimming holes. Have you have you seen any of the videos of this? Have they ever gone to you in an email? No, I don't really watch anything on YouTube. I probably should, but no, I'm not even familiar with what you're talking no, about. No, I'd keep you off YouTube then. I don't want to, I don't want you to go down that dark rabbit hole, but the, it's incredible. These guys are, you know, they, they show the process of building like a, a hut in the jungle and, you know, they, they get millions of views because people think, oh my God, they're making a, a structure out of mud and they're fire hardening the clay and they're making tiles and he's got a heated bed. And there's all, there's this, it seems like bushcraft has become like a way to show off now as opposed to just living humbly. You know what I mean? Like, do you have a pet peeve for, for like things that people do with, with bushcraft or you're like, you don't have to do that. You're just showing off. Well, again, we're talking about a, a word that's hard to define, <laughs> right. right? So maybe someone should put a definition out on, but that'd probably be bad. We don't need any more definitions. There's a lot of nonsense in this field, but it depends on context. You know, there's, I think one, one, one bitch that Moores did say on the phone the last time I talked to him was like, oh, people, they figure like in England, they have to wear these certain types of pants. So they're not, they're not into survival skills. You know, so there's a lot of commercialization of stuff. And again, stuff is content. It's important. But my motto is the more you know, the less you need. That's the motto of my school. Not great for selling gear, right? Um, because I'm my thing, my most important thing is freedom and independence for the client to be able to think for themselves. I don't need them buying shit from me if they don't need it. And a lot of gear is just monetized and, and, and directed towards people's ego or their fear or their just ignorance of, of not needing that gear. So right off the bat, I think, and I guess not, I don't have a problem with people selling things but there's people that that seems to be all they do is sell things. And we can go back to Petzl climbing the Tetons in, in his cowboy boots. Back in the day, you didn't have a camping store, right? And it's not like people stayed indoors and cowered under the sink watching TV. This whole industry has been radically commercialized and not for the better. Because again, all stuff can break, get lost, get ripped off can run out of batteries or whatever. So I think that Rumsfeld got, you know, beat on for teching out the military to a point where they were losing basic skills back in the day. What a mistake, you know? So, and again, I'm not a military guy per se, but that piqued my ears back when they were, you know, hey, this guy's trying to tech out the military to the point where they might lose some core skills. D dealing with technology and pushing technology in any sort of situation where there's lives involved and a lack of technology like the wilderness or like a grid down situation is a real, real problem. And that has to be assessed very carefully. The problem is it's not because everyone wants to sell more shit to make more money and develop new products. Does there, does, and I know this school has some products, whatever, and it's, I think it's more combat related than not. I don't know. I haven't checked out this school per se. Um, where I'm doing this podcast, but products, I don't have a problem with them, but when, when, when you don't need a lot of stuff to go outdoors, period, you just don't. And what I love about doing more with less is the skill level goes up and the appreciation goes up. 
So knowledge is lightweight and you can take it wherever you want. And that investment pays off many, many times. The knife might break, the knife might get dull, the knife might get lost. But learning how to make a cutting edge from a rock in a few seconds, you'll forget that if you have Alzheimer's and not before. So I'm very, very big on training to do more with less. I think that's the echelon of skill. When you can go out and get your needs met from an environment like all Native peoples did, regardless of your ethnicity, that's true power. That is power. And I like to train that way and teach that way with my students. And that's why my store, I have like a knife and a t-shirt and a hat and my books and that's it. What, what knife is it? Out of curiosity. I like, I like Scandinavian style knives and I pick that up from Moore's. That's not yeah. my idea. Yeah. Moore's is the one that turned everyone on to the Moore knife in North America. And I watched him do it. And Moore is a town in Sweden. They yeah, used I've to been, have. I've been there. Oh, have you? Hell yeah! Wow. Thirteen million knives. Uh, is it thirteen million knives a month or thirteen million knives a year? Wow. But they're they're cool people. Like super friendly. They give out when when you show up there, they give out a little package with like a like a little sample knife of band aids. They're like, you're probably going to need these. Who are you going to? The only company left, right? Right. And that's my point. Is there there used to be four or five companies? I still have my original. People say Mora knives. It's kind of a, I you know, it is it, but it isn't. I have a Premier knife. No one's probably ever heard of Premier. Premier. My knife is 29 years old. I started my company with the knife I just wore last week, and then a course. And it kind of looks like my grandpa's knife because it's been sharpened so many times. You said, Grandpa, that's a freaking toothpick. That's not a knife. It's not quite as bad as my grandpa's. But there used to be uh, Frost, KJ Erickson, Premier, and instead of Mura Naifa or whatever. So they've lost a lot of foundries, interestingly enough, yeah. you know, um, over time. But I, I like Scandinavian knives, uh, Finnish Pukos or whatever, because my ancestors have been killing other people's ancestors for over a thousand years. <laughs> you know, the Vikings know how to make their steel, man, yeah. you know, and they know about a wide bevel. So you don't have to be Stevie Wonder on a landscape to sharpen it. You know, you can, you can feel, you can feel the bevel lock in, you know, on a wide bevel. I worked with a Sami man um, in Norway and he gave me one of, of the Sami knives, big ass ones. I'm not a fan of big knives, but this knife was like 12 inch blade. It's what I guess the Samis used to kill the Germans with, you know, and whatever. But they do everything with it. There, it's almost like the, um, the Sami uh, machete. So, but this, the, 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 the functionality was the same. The wide bevel was the same. If you look at Scandinavian knives in general, they make sense. The reason they make sense is they've been used for over a thousand years because the, the Scandinavian people have been messing with metal for a long, long time. And what's funny is that the more simple, in, this is obviously my opinion, because when you start talking about knives, they look like dicks for a reason. <laughs> it gets real phallic and everyone's testosterone goes up and everyone wants to beat their chest. I mean, I don't give a shit, you know, but I like stuff that works. And there's a confusion out there with some knife people and knife makers. They One in particular, I won't name, not a knife maker, but a person that knew nothing about knives, but had a knife, you know, this part of the edge does this, this part of the blade does this, this part of the blade does this. Every piece of the knife was sectioned off to have a different use. 
Well, no one apparently told this person that's the user's job. The more simple the blade design is, it's the user that makes that blade do a thousand different things. If you specialize that blade all over the map on every orifice that the blade has, that's someone who doesn't understand knife use. And I, I appreciate the simplicity and multi-use of Scandinavian steel. I appreciate the carbon steel they do have, which, you know, I've heard a little rumor that that's a little bit going downhill in quality, but that's little bird told me. And um, I appreciate the the functionality of simplicity. Yeah, you know, like I'm half Filipino, so so blades are in my culture. You know, like like Filipinos and knives were, were like peanut butter and jelly. Um, I'm definitely more of the peanut butter. Um, you know, and and I've used knives for a long time. I mean, I talking about American Survival Guide before that magazine. I I remember as a kid looking at all these knives, and I remember I started off with like a, a Buck Buckmaster, and I was like, that's the coolest knife because Rambo had a hollow handled knife. But I found as I got more skilled, my knife got smaller and smaller. It became more practical. And eventually when it came to the point where I was like, you know, maybe I want to just design a knife. And meanwhile, I'm not designing anything that's ever, you know, never been done before. Like all these designs have been found from one culture to a next. I just found the, the particular parameters that work for me. People were like, man, I thought your knife would be bigger. I thought your knife, you know, it's this one actually, it's a, a Gossman Polaris. Um, but everyone's like, that knife is, is, you can't chop a tree with it. I'm like, well, why would I have to chop a tree? You know, and I think people imagine like a survival instructor needs a knife that is, you know, this, this multi-tool 5,000, you know, it has a, a million functions, but then it detracts from the purpose of a knife. Like I want a knife that's going to cut. If I need to chop that tree, I'm going to carry an ax, or maybe it might be more uh, practical. If I'm in an emergency, pack an emergency saw so I don't have to swing a, a big object that could cause, you know, a hatchet wound in my leg, you know, um, you know, you know, what's funny is, uh, you know, when you walked in, I, a lot of people may not know this about Cody Lundin here, you know, I'm six feet tall and about 215 and I'm not looking Cody in the eye. Like I'm looking up at him and I still have shoes on. How tall are you? I'm not, I'm what, how tall are you? I'm six. I'm 5'11", so I'm looking up to you. Okay, well, maybe it was just maybe it was just the hill that I was on, but but you're but you're a big dude. Um, now you've got interest in powerlifting too, right? Or or just standard lifting? No, I I like to lift weights, and I when I did go to jail a long time ago when I was a kid, I started training in jail, and I told myself I would never stop training, so I would never remember or forget that experience, and then thus never have to go back. To jail. No so I kidding. just kept training. Yeah, that's, I don't know if that's ever been on a podcast. I've done a lot of interviews, but yeah, that's why I started chaining in, in jail. Well, dude, this is awesome. We're, we're finding out more about the man that most people would just say, oh, he's just the barefoot guy. You got a lot of layers. Um, you got any preferred workouts? Like um, free weights, free gross, weights. gross motor skills, deadlifter. Nothing, nothing, not really. I don't, I'm, I don't deadlift very well. I think it's an amazing exercise. I just don't do it very well. The mechanics of, of my body. Um, pretty simple workout, uh, five days a week, um, you know, one body part per day. Um, shoulders on one day, uh, and this isn't any particular order, back on one day, chest on one day, legs on one day, and arms on another day. And weekends, I'm usually, that's when I work usually. Uh, my courses are on weekends or a full week. But so I'm, I'm pretty much a, a a weekly trainer five days a week. 
Now, now I'm 40 years old and I'll say that like lifting for me now is not like when I was half my age and there's definitely a recovery. I'm not going to ask you your age, but like, have you found over time that your lifting program has just, it's had to be modified because you need time for recovery, uh, maybe like diet, you know, like what have you found over the years? Cause I mean, it seems like you've been doing this for a long time. I haven't found really w- what, like today I double trained because I didn't train yesterday because I was working my ass off in 106 degree heat at my homestead. So what, what I'm getting at is I had a lousy training today, one, cause I was doing two body parts and two, I was tired from yesterday, from the heat and from the labor I was doing, cutting pipes, digging dirt, you know, digging trenches. So when I do, like when I come back from a survival course, I'm going to have a crappy workout. And typically what I find when I'm teaching, if I'm teaching for a weekend, which I did last weekend, I probably need about that same amount of time before I feel mostly normal. In other words, I'm going to be a little bit fatigued Monday. I'll be a little bit fatigued Tuesday. Wednesday, I'll probably be back at it. I have a nine-day course coming up. And after that, I will need not nine days, but I, I will need probably three or four days before it. But that's, that's nothing age-related. That's just period. That's, <laughs> to, that's yeah. just, this is my experience since I started. And I've been doing this a long time. Uh, you know, it's, and you add heat, it gets worse, you know, especially yeah. with the heat we're having now. It really takes a lot out of people. And I can power through some pretty intense stuff. But I know my body fairly well, and I know, well, crap. You know, I didn't lift X, Y, and Z because I just, the body is only has so much juju, you know, and you have to get the recovery time and the nutrition are standard as long as, uh, as well as resistance training if you're talking about weightlifting. But yeah, forget if you're going to, you're not going to have a stellar day at the gym right after teaching a survival course. And it's also mentally exhausting because when I teach, I'm giving 110%. I'm there 110%. I'm not, I'm not taking it lightly. And so it's just like, uh, it's a lot of energy expended when you're teaching to the best of your ability. Now, how can those two worlds exist? Like, obviously you're a primitive skills guy. You got amazing, like natural talent in the natural world, I should say. And then you're, you're this lifter, you know, like, is it possible to, to maintain like the, the muscle mass and in that same level of, of fitness, eating like a, a non-supermarket fed or uh, well, obviously your homesteader, but is it possible for those worlds to exist? Like, do you know of any Aboriginal tribes that have like just big dudes? Well, yeah. If you look at you know, if you look at some Polynesian people, yeah. I mean, they're yeah, they're they're big people, but look at where they are. You know, they're kind of in the land of milk and plenty. Hell you know, yeah. it's like they have a lot of different stuff to eat. Including man pig. You familiar with that one? Man pig? Yeah. When I was in Fiji, um, I bought these. They weren't real, but they were a replica of these war clubs that were just like incredibly. When I'm talking a war club here, it's, oh boy, it, it looks like almost a spade on a card with inlays of, of abalone and shell and very intricate, and they'd fucking kill you and eat you. And in, in killing, you know, New Zealand, when they stick their tongue, you know, it's yeah, like you're, you're on the menu. Mm. So in Fiji, they call eating someone else man pig, you know, and they would go hunt man pig. 
And these war clubs were just like, they just brutalize you. So um, I'm, not in, uh, I'm not invoking cannibalism for, for <laughs> bodybuilders out there. But, you know, you, you need to look at the person. You need to look at the look at the Bushmen, very small and slight and whatever. Yeah, you're talking like the San Bushmen. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, they're not going to support some 200-pound dude, you know, in, in, in the South African desert. You need to—it's funny how that people's geography—I just mentioned it last week on my course. You know, you look at the Inuit. We used to call them Eskimo, improper. They've—you they've, uh, know, because of the environment they're in, they're stocky, barrel-chested, shorter. They have a lot more— uh, volume to surface area ratio because they're in cold climate. If you look at someone like the Maasai, they're long and lean and tall. They've elongated that body to be like a radiator because they're in a hotter climate. So really someone's environment is going to literally over evolutionary time dictate the body shapes of those that survive. I'm sure there was skinny Inuits at one point, but they just freaking died quick. I'd like to take some of America's youth and throw them into Maasai culture. Right, like for a long time, the Maasai, their their rite of passage was killing a lion. Can you imagine, like, some of these kids today that complain that they have no Wi-Fi service? Like, yeah. by the way, here's a real problem: that lion is waiting for you. You know, like yeah. I, I don't think our our kids today are anywhere near as hard or tough or or ready for adversity like some of these cultures around the world. That those cultures, I mean, they're they're living so happily, you know, with just being content with having a few necessities. And they're not worried about Wi-Fi, you know. It's unreal. Um, let's let's talk about something that obviously I think a lot of people want to know about. And I'm just gonna like <laughs> take you off the leash. Go nuts. Tell us about television. Tell us about what we should know. What what's your story, man? Like with, I mean, obviously you've done stuff. I remember watching you do a, a newscast where you showed how to open a tuna can on a on a piece of concrete. And you've been involved in TV a long time, but most people know you from Dual Survivor. What what should we know? Oh God, there's a lot to know. Um, one of the one of the biggest things that I think that people might not be familiar with is when survival skills were featured on television a long time ago, and we'll call it back in the day. They were more informational, and what I mean by that is I did a lot of TV before. It's by the way, it's a dual survival, but even Discovery Channel can't figure out the name of their show. <laughs> um, the there was a lot of news stuff going on, so you'd take Kent Dana from CBS News or wherever out in the field, and he would want to know, well, what should our people know, our people in Phoenix know now that the summertime temperatures have peaked, about what happens if their car breaks down? It was it was they were at, they were after the skills. They were after real skills with no phony sensationalism and drama. Obviously, things have changed. So now it's pretty much about phony drama and sensationalism. So it's interesting to watch the, the well, I should say de-evolution of survival TV. I use that term loosely about what used to be trying to serve the public to what now is about uh, trapping ratings and making money at the expense of people's brains. Man, I mean... I I remember when that survival genre blew up. It all started, I think, with like the combination of Les Stroud and, and Bear Grylls, right? Like those were the, the two names on, I think they were both on Discovery, right? 
unfortunately. <laughs> so, so everyone said, oh, Les Stroud, he's there, and he's filming himself, and then uh, Bear Grylls has the camera crew following him. And, and now we've got a sh another show that's out there, super popular, and I, I find it interesting because of the, the psychology, like watching people crack and, and seeing what they miss. Um, but how do you feel about that, that show where uh, it's alone, where they're filming themselves? And I think we, we talked about this before, about the editing. Uh, what, what was that, that phrase that you used uh, with Alone, like in, in terms of filming it and editing it? Alone is the only show. And to be clear, I don't watch TV survival mm -hmm. shows. Check. Gotcha. I haven't even watched my own show, none of the episodes except for one. Um, so I've never seen, I know people that are on the show, but Alone is the only show that I'm familiar with because I have to be, because people keep thinking that I care, that's edited twice. And what I mean by that is the people are filming themselves. So human nature being what it is, you're not going to film yourself knowingly in an embarrassing situation. You're going to film yourself being a rock star. And we all know that's not how things work in the wilderness. So the disservice of that show is that it's edited twice. You have Think about the survival television show. Okay, I already said that survival situations are, in my opinion, 90% psychology. They involve people trying to mitigate their own death and potentially people right next to them that they, that they love a whole bunch. So your life is on the line, okay? There's that unspoken stress, that psychological stress of death that is not apparent in any TV survival show. So when you're alone, I'm not saying there's not stress in that, especially for someone who's never been alone. But you have producers dropping off new batteries and you have no one's mm -hmm. alone with a sat right. phone or a walkie-talkie saying, yeah, I'm done, get me out of here. Think about that real deeply for a minute. When I can take away one of the most pressing stresses in a survival situation called try not to die and save my family and totally eliminate it out of the picture in any survival show because you have a sat phone or a walkie or a cameraman right in front of you or whatever, you've automatically neutered some of the most important training you could possibly get. And I don't know how to mimic that. To be fair, and I don't like to be fair with anything survival television because a lot of it's an embarrassment, if you have a SWAT unit or a military unit or anyone that gets woken up with a phone call at 2 in the morning, hostage situation, downtown Prescott, Arizona, oh, God, they get out of bed, and when they go to the police unit or whatever you want to call it for their weapon, they have a blue tape wrapped around the magazine rather than red tape. So what that means is the blue tape means it's a drill. So think about that. Even a highly trained law enforcement person or military person, as soon as they know it's a drill, and eventually you know it's a drill, something in their brain goes, it's a drill. So to really turn someone on into really hardcore survival training or whatever, you almost need to be a bit cruel and be manipulative and trick them into what's going down. And there's ways to do that with a skilled instructor and a very long waiver, by the way. But, but it's, when you sign up for a class, you sign up for a class. No one signs up September 29th, I'm going into my survival situation. 
part of what makes a survival situation so scary is they just happen. There is no warning that wasn't on your day calendar like a survival course. No training, including my own, can do justice to that. So when you think about the essence of staying alive, the psychological crushing stress of watching your wife or your kid die of hypothermia and trying to mitigate that, or the stress of, you know, being outdoors or et cetera, you just can't do it. You just, you just can't do it. Yeah. I think with all training, um, I don't care if you're, you're doing martial arts. I don't care if it's survival training. I don't care if it's a, a practice for like the big game in the back of your head. Like you said, there's always the idea that it's training and, you know, at some point when you start modifying your training to make it more difficult, more stressful, you also have to balance the willingness to accept that someone's probably going to get injured. You know what I mean? Like from a grappling perspective, jujitsu perspective, I mean, we always have the safety of tapping out, right? Survival perspective, depending where you are, you have the safety of, you know, going back to civilization, going back to your car, getting hot food or whatever. But when you really want to push the envelope, I mean, it seems like you, you end up really skating that fine line of this is safe. This is not safe. You know, like, uh, I mean, for the listeners that are out there, what do you think is one of the greatest training modifiers you can introduce? Like as, as an instructor for so many years, like to any type of skills practice, like fire starting or, or building a shelter or, um, or signaling, like, have you found something that introduces stress that the, the listeners could apply, like whether it's a father doing this with his son, a father doing it with his daughter, the mother doing it with her, with her, you know, Cub Scouts, whatever it may be. Is there a great training modifier that you, you feel like you can, you can share with the audience here? The first thing that popped into my head is humility. So when a person realizes like myself, I'm just as vulnerable as anyone else, that nature's the boss, that Murphy rules. When you have humility in your training, then one, you're open to learning new material, and two, you don't get cocky. I remember Morris telling me, you know, well, cocky people are kind of rare in this industry because frankly, they die, you know? So knowing what I know about the wilderness and human wilderness, because I deal with the two most radical variables on the planet. One is mother nature and one is human nature under stress. And I can't think of two more broad headings that have more variables than what the wilderness can do and what people can do under extreme stress or fear. So knowing what I know, this being my 29th season for my school as a professional survival instructor, sometimes the more I know, I, I don't feel I know anything. And I think Dave Gancy is another one of my mentors who is my desert survival guru. And he's getting older too. He's several books, was in the first uh, Bush War, uh, flew over to Kuwait, etc. And he, I used to ask him questions like students might ask me a question now. It's like, damn it, just tell me the answer, Dave. Just give me the black and white answer. He said, Cody, uh, there, uh, maybe yes, maybe no. And the, the, he would say, maybe yes, maybe no. And that would piss me off. And then he would say, there's, there's the variables. 
and I took variables from him. Uh, the word variables I took from Dave Gansey. And it took about 15 years for this intellectual thought I had about what he was trying to say for it to go down to my heart and realize, now I know what he's talking about. He knows so much that he realizes that he doesn't and will never know enough to keep himself safe and ever it just you can't do it and so i think for someone to get maximal respect in their training and to pay attention to their training and to make the most of that training and to be fully present in that training is to realize they're fucking vulnerable and to have some humility that if you think you're a badass you don't know what's coming down the pike yeah you haven't trained hard enough you haven't reached that eclipse of maybe yes, maybe no variables and like like the masters, like my teachers, who who the reason they were saying that, they weren't trying to hold back anything or being difficult, they didn't know. So here's someone with over 40 years of desert survival experience like Dave Gansey, and he's saying, Cody, it depends. There goes your, there's your context, which always trumps content. The problem with survival training, and this is largely, I think, the fault of the instructor, is, you know, I've had students come to my school that trained at other schools years ago where they were told, you're good now, you're, you're a shaman now, you're this and that. Mm-hmm. That's bullshit. They're being lied to. And I don't try to pussify my students by meaning it's like, but I'm always pushing the risks, because that's my job, is to mitigate risk. And if I don't bring up the risks and bring up the respect that it takes to be in the woods or the humility that Native peoples had and the awareness that this stuff I'm telling to my student could happen to me too, the, the problem with, with buying someone's own bullshit and that's the essence of survival TV is people that watch themselves and buy their own bullshit is that when something happens to that individual and they find themselves in a real emergency scenario, they can go catatonic and go walking wounded because they haven't ever really thought that it could happen to them. And that's one of the biggest mistakes you can make is being so overconfident that you lose your humanity and you lose your humility and you let your fucking guard down as a professional. And we know that that's, you know, I don't care how much training a special forces guy has, he can get around right in the face when he jumps out of the helicopter. End of story, done deal, he's dead. Anyone that would deny that, I think is full of shit. These people aren't fucking super people. They're heavily trained, hardcore warriors. I'm not minimizing that, but they can be destroyed. They can be shot, they can be killed. And I think that I don't, I've never been a warrior. I've never been in combat. And I highly respect the ability to do that, to be able to maintain a certain source of tribal pride in in your other people and humility and the probably altruism to die for one of your comrades. It's a high honor, you know, and I don't understand what that's like because I've never done that. But I do know what it's like in my profession to, to, buy, to try to be responsible. And 
offer a real humanly real position on outdoor survival training because I love my clients and I want them to live. And I have zero tolerance for the bullshit in my industry and the bullshit and overconfidence that can come with people who think they know what they're doing when they don't. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of people out there that put up this image and whether it's on their website, Facebook, Instagram or whatever, like they put up what they want others to see, right? But when you go to their classes or you're around them, you see who they really are. And you mentioned it before with like how you don't brand a lot of things, right? There, there's no Cody Lundin canteen. There's no Cody Lundin, uh, uh, you know, let's see, geez. Like, anything. Yeah, anything. Like, like <laughs> you, don't, you don't really have a, you don't have a logo, right? I mean, I see I your, have a the, logo. Shirt, the shirt that you're wearing. Yeah. Like I'm looking at it right now and, you know, what was the process for that? Like, it doesn't seem like that logo was designed for just marketing, right? Like just throw it on a knife, throw it on a water bottle, throw it on shirts. Like, like what was the, the background of that logo? It's interesting. I, I don't know if I've been asked that before. That's, that's why they hired you. me, you know, like yeah. I ask these questions, brother. This, this image, um, there's a story behind it, obviously, or any, everything there's a story behind, or it's not worth talking about. I took an imagery in an intuition class in college a long time ago, and my instructor had this image called, now they call it the sorcerer, um, I don't know why, we can get into that later. This is a pictograph from a cave in France It's about twelve to 14,000 years old, and I'm not French and I can't speak French, but it was, it's called the three, the three Brothers. And three little kids crawled into these caverns 100, 125 years ago and found some of the most elaborate cave paintings in the history of Europe in what is now called France. Obviously, it wasn't French, uh, France then. This image was in black oxide and a pictograph, again, is painted on. A petroglyph is pecked on. We have both here mm-hmm. in the Southwest. These were painted image, painted images, 12,000 plus years old, this image was at a place that you couldn't reach without some help. And by the way, this is way back in a deep cave a long time ago. And he was in black oxide. On the other side of the cave, in red ochre, there was all of the animals of the day, mastodons, mammoths, saber-toothed cats, etc. And this person is shamanic that's on my shirt. It's clearly a man because you can see the balls and the penis hanging there. But you can see the internal organs, which is personified of any shamanic figure where they're magical. You can see through them. So there's the elk antlers and the the horse's tail and the bear paws. It's half animal and it's half human. And that's what it takes to survive in the wilderness. And so I loved that image. And then I had my art instructor in college who gave me a C, by the way. I was used to getting A's, but I I guess I sucked enough in my art class. He's been my illustrator for both my books. And he redrew this image and and hand-lettered the, you know, the font is is hand-drawn. Because I said, I want something Viking. Let's make something like hammered metal that looks like something that was forged in a Viking. So this is all drawn with pen and ink for real. It's not a computer font I picked out. And it evolved over many years of time. It wasn't something I had someone draw so I could make money. It's something that's personally important to me because it's that half man, half animal mentality to survive in the woods. And also it's European. 
I purposely did not take a Native American design because I'm not Native American. I'm European Scandinavian. And so this is from our peoples, my peoples, or whatever you want to call it, or were they? Who knows what was going on 12,000 years ago? But I'll be damned if I'm going to walk around with a Coco Pelle here in the Southwest for my survival school. So that's the story behind that image. That's awesome. You know, a lot of people just rush to create a logo and they, they tend to use just simple imagery, right? But they don't have deep layers of, of complexity that you need an explanation like that to, to understand. Um, you know, you bring up the shaman and you bring up like the, these just like the experience um, uh, of different peoples around the world. One of the things that is so hot right now for, uh, I've got a handful of friends that are doing this and I, and I wonder, like I, n I never would. Have, have you ever experimented or have you ever talked to anyone or have you ever thought about the whole um, ayahuasca? You know, you know that, that drink that they drink the. Yeah. Yeah. Like what's your take on that? Like, I don't know enough about it to have a take on it. You know, I, mean, I, I have a lot of interesting friends. Yeah. You know, some have experience in that. I know I don't really know anything about it. Seems terrifying. Like I've heard, I, I, I watched this one show, uh, I think it was Bruce Perry, and he experienced ayahuasca and he was talking about how, you know, in the, the hallucinogenic state, he saw a version of himself from childhood and he started crying. Like, I don't want that, you know, but I guess a lot of people use it to expand their minds and, you know, whatever it may be, but... I mean, in the Southwest, that was like, like, what was the purpose of peyote? It depends on what culture is taking it. Yeah. Right. So I don't know because I'm not of that culture. I know plenty of people that have done that substance. Usually it's some sort of vision quest thing, you know, and, and uh, some of that vision quest and those visions or whatever you want to call that can happen to deprivation. You know, sun dancing and, hey, we're going to put you on that hill and no food or water for three or four days. And you're going to be hallucinating by the end of that, just uh, the physical deprivation. You're getting into a lot of cultural stuff. I'm sure your culture had mm. their own initiation oh, rituals, absolutely. too. And I know the Vikings did as well. Oh, yeah. So, but to speak on someone else's culture when I'm, I have no clue, I, I don't want to do that because yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that's fair enough. I mean, I think one of the, the issues is there are so many people out there now that want to just join these cultures and they don't realize how insensitive that is. Uh, you know, I had a, a buddy and I, and I took a bow making class with this guy, uh, Ralph Panero, and you know, he passed away. He was no, he was a native and he always said how no white man can know or be invited into some of these rituals. And it's almost offensive. It's actually very offensive to, to say, well, I'm just like a native American. It's like, you can't say that. Um, you know, I, I think that's something that, that there's such a sensitivity to now where people want to join these cultures and they don't realize just how, how much that bothers people that have lived in that culture. I mean, that's, that's one of my personal pet peeves with, with the whole survival genre or these, a lot of people that think, oh, I know these native skills and now I'm like a native American. It's like, no, you're not <laughs> you, 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 just cause you know, a couple of the skills and you're not that person. But, uh. I got a question for you. This is one that I just brought up the other day in a class. Something that's always fascinated me is the idea that friction fire skills from one culture to another, this is before the day of any known connectivity, like before the days of exploration, advanced sea travel. I, I mean, it seems like they've, they all kind of 
uh, were invented or they like we can trace it back to around the same time, give or take, obviously, a few hundred years. But before the days of connectivity, do you have a theory on how all this technology from around the world just happened at once, you know, so to speak? Um, I don't know if it did happen at once. Yeah. I don't, you, it sounds like you have more of a timeline on it than I do. I don't know. Like some of the technologies, you know, the more moving parts, usually the newer it is, Correct. you know, because right. the more moving parts. I don't know. I haven't done enough research. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I have, but have forgotten about, hey, here's when they think the boat drill <laughs> happened and here's when they think the handrail. Um, I don't know. Is it some kid screwing around doing something that gave someone an idea? Is it like a Jungian psychology, a collective unconscious, where there was a dream that someone had? You know, why are the Lakota Sioux in South Dakota doing a handrail when the the, uh, the Bushmen are also doing a handrail? They clearly never met, That's at least not physically. Mind. I think I don't know, and I don't think we'll ever know. And I think that's a great question that can never be answered. But I think that what I will say is when you spend enough time in the backcountry, being in the backcountry and not then going back to your house in town, stuff happens and, you know, even accidents are more noticeable and some kid doing, I mean, I've learned some great skills from an 11-year-old in my class about how to strike a metal match better than I was doing because he had no bias about how a skill could be done or should be done. And that's important for every instructor to realize is I learn a lot from my students. And whenever they teach me something better than I'm already offering, I won't hesitate to copy it. So whether it was some kid messing around, a dream someone had or whatever, I don't think we'll ever know the answer know. to that. It's, it's wild. That's something that I've thought about I don't know how many times. And, and I wonder if I ever will know. I probably will never but it's still a question I like asking people. Like, what? How do you think that happened? And it just thought provocation. By the way, are you going to tell us what that trick was with the metal match? Yeah, um, there, the metal match. I'm referring. There's a lot of metal matches mm -hmm. out there. Ferrocerium, blah blah blah. But there's the one that I like that has the magnesium as well with it. And this like that mish metal. The mish metal is kind of a catch term for ferrocerium, which mm -hmm. is in the actual striking element that makes the heater ignition source. The one I still like is, you know, now kind of an old school one. It's the one with the magnesium block sure. as well, because mm -hmm. the magnesium at 5,400 degrees, we just taught fire making with that three days ago. Um, what I do is on that block, and anyone knows who's bought one, and I don't like the ones at the big box store. I like the other... I, I like the Dones Tool Company one, and this is not an endorsement for them, especially since I got an email from a month ago, they're going out of business. But they seem to have a higher quality ferrocerium and a higher quality um, uh, silver stuff. I'm just drawing a blank here. Magnesium? Higher quality magnesium, yeah. and you can tell, because I have both, if you put one from the big box store next to one they have, the big box store one will oxidize. You know, the magnesium will gray out and the mish metal is a little bit different. So what I do, because anyone who knows who's bought one of those, it comes with just a keychain and that's it. And then the actual fire starting tool is I'll get a cheap hacksaw blade. Um, there's two ends to it, obviously, with the holes. And I'll snap off a hacksaw blade to the length of that fire starting tool and I'll put it on that lanyard. What you don't want to do, like the idiot on the Dones tool thing, is take your knife, 
with the blade part and scrape it on that ferrocerium or you'll spend the better part of your life sharpening out the divot on, on your blade. And so some people have put divots in the back of their blades and that's fine. But I like a hacksaw blade because no one cut their thumb off with a hacksaw blade under stress. And we'll take that off. And I used to teach people by about using the, the long part of the hacksaw blade. Don't use the saw edge for this. There's no reason to use the saw edge for any part of this application. So there's three edges. There's the saw edge. There's the opposite edge that's opposite the saw edge. Then there's the edge that you broke off from the mother hacksaw blade. So there's three edges to that. Like a screwdriver. Like the, like Correct. the tip of it. Okay. Yeah, you snap the hacksaw blade. That is inherently super freaking sharp because you just snapped it off. It is sharper than the long edge of the hacksaw blade without the teeth. So I used to take the long edge of the hacksaw without the teeth and run it down that ferrocerium to make my sparks. And I had this 11-year-old kid and of course, oh God, I don't, I mean, years ago, and he was breaking my hacksaw blades and I was turning, I could, king, because I could hear him, you know, when I was helping someone else. And I was turning around to yell at him, just quit doing that. And he had this huge rooster stale of sparks. And I was like, what are you doing? And what he was doing is flexing that hacksaw blade like a bow, putting his thumb on it and using the sharp <laughs> broken edge and getting a lot more heat, which of course is key to fire making, than I was on the straight edge. Now I do use the straight edge opposite the teeth on the hacksaw blade for taking magnesium off the block, that I don't use that broken piece for only, I only use that for the ferrocerium, keep it freaking sharp. My students are using older tools and mm -hmm. I do that on purpose. We just did a, you know, with a half paper match or whatever, um, I'll do that when I can, when the permits allow, and we'll, I'll give them old books of matches because no one starts out with a new book of matches. So, my, my hacksaw blades are dull more than they would be if you took a new hacksaw blade, broke it, and then trained with your trainer. You want to know how to use a tool, but I want a fairly new tool in my survival kit. Don't put a shitty, worn-out piece of gear in your survival kit. Ideally, if you're, if you're using these magnesium fire-making tools with the ferrocerium mish metal or whatever, you'll have two. You'll wear the hell out of one, finding out how it works and all the nuances, and then you'll pack the other in your survival kit that's, that's new and ready to go. So I'm going down a few rabbit holes at once about, you know, old book of matches, put it in the sun, look at the striking insert, look for the place that doesn't shine back, because that's where a bunch of other students have taken the grid off that. There's all these tricks you can do to make it more realistic for training. These are the matches you take you took out of the glove box from Billy Bob's bar that, you know, are five years old or whatever. So I make my students use used gear. One, it's more economical, duh, I'm not gonna buy new stuff. And two, it's more realistic for them using used beat up gear in the field and finding how, how to make that work. Yeah, when kids get ferro rods, like the three eighth by like you know, four inch ones, like the standard army size ones, so to speak. I find that a lot of kids will just simply go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth on the rod. They just want to see the sparks. And then they hand it back to me at the end of the course. And I end up with this, like, you know, it looked like a barbell almost like 
fat rod, skinny rod, fat rod with this big divot carved out from, from the inside. And I'm like, oh my God, there goes like 15 bucks, 20 bucks. And then I do it again. So it's gotten to the point now where I tell people, if you're going to a survival class, unless the instructor is providing something, you're going to have to dance with the date that you brought because I mean, ferro rods get expensive and, and other gear, I mean, obviously is a little bit more economical, but you know, it seems like people have a greater appreciation and they don't, they don't damage their gear if they brought it themselves. You know, like it's it's on their dime. Well, it's the job of the instructor to talk about conservation of resources. Yeah. And that's what a lot of people don't get as far as survival instructors. It's like you're always, any survival situation out there is a reduction or a lack of resources. Every one of them, without exception. If someone starves, it was a lack of a resource called calories or food. If someone goes down from hypothermia, drop in core body temperature, it was a lack of resources to heat up that core body temperature. So because every survival situation is caused by a lack of something, a lack of bringing a map, a lack of having a spare tire, a lack of having training or whatever, I always hammer into my students the, the, the importance of conserving resources. That's key. So that should be, there. if a student brings hands you back a ferrocerium rod like that, really that's on you. Because oh, the, the first <laughs> thing that you tell them is, look, if this was the last tool you had, you can get hundreds of fires out of this if you treat this right. Now that said, I let my students hammer my gear, but, it, but I always, you know, the conservation of resources, I've read a lot of survival stories. I find them enjoyable. I'm not, I don't read other people's YouTube or blog. I, I, I want to hear from the horse's mouth, not the horse's ass. And if, you, if I could count the number of times that people had something happen, they thought they saw the plane that thought it was going to rescue them, so they ate all their chocolate, or they used all their matches, or they smoked all their cigarettes. That's happened time and time and time and time again. Even how people react and gather stuff. When we're in a base camp, no one touches resources within however many yard perimeter. Why? Because a lot of people, when they gather close in, when they break their ankle, all of a sudden have to travel further out. So we always gather resources from further out. Well, we have the calories to do that, to always save the resources in close proximity to our base camp. One, for camouflage, two, for beauty, and three, the most important thing for survival training is just so you have that research, that resource. That's critical. That's, that's base survival training. And the reason it's critical and the reason it's base is one, we've talked about lack of resources causing survival situations. And two Americans are fucking spoiled rotten. They consume. We're like locusts. We're not used to conserving. So when you say conservation, they think hippie, something green, hug a tree. No, you know, conservation is about living. And not that native peoples didn't screw up. Read about Chaco Canyon sometime. What the hell happened there? You know, but conservation of resources, respecting your gear, maintaining it, using it only when you need to is paramount to staying alive. So you mentioned something about uh, your vehicle in there. And for those of you that have never seen Cody's vehicle, it's an awesome Jeep. Tell us about that thing. I just have a regular Jeep. I mean, I like it. It is a Rubicon. It's an older Rubicon. And yeah, I have a, a wrap job for marketing on it. 
But I, as a friend of mine who I did a survival course with, he taught the four-wheel drive extraction and I taught the survival was Moses Liddell. And if you don't know Moses Liddell and all the books he's written for Jeep, for Mopar, for Toyota, etc., he's the god. He's the guru. And he told me when I was thinking about getting a Jeep, yeah, wait on it. They're going to work out some bugs, get the 2006 model. He said, the only thing you're going to want to add probably on that is a skid plate for, I think it was the oil pan. And so I did, and I got just a basic two-inch of neoprene bushing lift just so I could put a little bit bigger tires on it. But that thing, um, other than, uh, uh, of course, the shocks are garbage from, from the factory. So you get a steering stabilizer and different shocks right off the get-go. Um, that's pretty much it. And that Jeep I've had since 2006. It's my primary vehicle. A lot of miles on it. A lot of them backcountry miles. How many miles? I think it's 146,000 on it. And I'd say, oh, at least half of those are, are dirt road miles. Damn. They're back. They're back. So I'm, I'm pleased with the vehicle, and this is not an endorsement for Jeep at all, at all. Um, but that's what I drive. I've just been driving Jeeps since I was a kid, and um, it, 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 does me, it does me well. Yeah, a lot of the listeners obviously follow the, the Fieldcraft Mobility page. You know, obviously this company does a lot with overlanding and, you know, uh, readying your vehicles to, to handle off-road driving and whatnot. So it's always a, a good idea to know what are people driving. You have any survival gear in that that you would recommend? Or is there any gear that you'd recommend anyone to just throw in their car, their truck, their rig, whatever, that the average person probably is not thinking about? Yeah, I mean... Um... Whatever you think is pertinent to your situation. So for me, when I go home, I could get in a wilderness survival situation driving home. Because to get to my home, it's more than 36 miles one way of dirt road in remote areas on various dirt roads. So, I mean, I have in my Jeep pretty much what I would have in a survival kit. You know, there's a tarp in there. There's extra clothing. There's extra water. There's probably food that needs to be rotated, like whatever, protein bars. That's low on the list. Um, you know, fire making, cordage. So I'll have a mimic of probably what I have in 98.6 degrees, Art of Keeping Your Ass Alive, in that Jeep. Um, because, I mean, if I break down, I mean, literally, it's it, it could be, it's getting weird now. There's like, you know three neighbors now within a mile or something. <laughs> but back back in the day, you drove down this road and it could be it could be a day before someone else drove down the road. So for me, I have what someone would have in a wilderness survival kit in my Jeep. If you're down in Scottsdale or Phoenix, it might be a comfortable pair of shoes to walk home. It might be a handgun. Right. If you're in a, in a metro area, it might be an extra cell phone charger. It might be some cash to get yourself out of a pinch, whether it's buying something or bribing someone. So my Jeep, because it's mostly in backcountry areas, the semblance of what I have in survival kit gear and a toe strap and whatever is is more is more wilderness survival elements. Now you mentioned a handgun and all the stuff that I've I've read and I've seen from you, like. I've always seen you as like a trapper, you know, someone who's either fishing or trapping, like, you know, that type of food gathering. I mean, are you much of a, a hunter? Do you, do you have any f interest in firearms, bows and arrows, atlatls, whatever it may be? Uh, yeah, I have an interest in all sorts of hunting stuff. 
Um, I don't do a lot of hunting. I know a lot of hunters, real hardcore hunters. Uh, they're friends of mine. Um, you know, I think that, you know, when you have something like a twenty-two rifle, I mean, my God, you know, it depends on the bioregion. You know, if you're in basin and range high desert and you need to reach out and touch a jackrabbit, you know, I'm good luck with your throwing stick, you know. So <laughs> so I'm I'm not opposed to firearms at all, um at all for defense or for for more longer term living in the backcountry. And I've eaten many cottontails and I've eaten many blacktail jackrabbits and I've eaten many mice and I've eaten many rats. Because uh, you go with what you have. You know, there's places where, you know, Maybe, you know, I mean, I have uh, large amounts of high desert at my disposal. So maybe there's brush I might pile up here from trimming a juniper tree that all of a sudden makes a natural rabbit warren. So you can stack the deck sometime in your favor by creating habitat for the certain critters that are in your area that you can then, you know, I mean, I think rat traps, I'm, I, I like Victor rat traps and Victor mouse traps. Rat traps, mouse traps, I have a surplus of them. Yeah, we've got the students right now carrying those as a as a makeshift perimeter alarm rigged up with a with a glow stick. But oh, man, really? those things are yeah, you don't want to get your finger caught in one of those. Yeah, they work real well. And you know, if you think about rodents, I mean I don't enjoy eating rodents, but rodents can really put a hurt on gear. They can put a hurt on emergency food supply, they can give diseases to your family. I mean, look at we're dealing with COVID-19 that came from some sort of animal where someone probably did something they shouldn't have. So, you know, uh, uh, vectors of disease. I mean, you know, you, you asked about hunting. So I'm giving you, you know, I'm not going to go bison hunting. I'm not going, I, I'm going to kill something I can that I can legally kill that's a lot of, that I can reach out and touch for my area. So I've made sure where I live in my area that I can hunt when I need to for the species that are legal and abundant where I live. You know, it's interesting. You talk about, uh, you know, leaving the juniper tree down as like a, I won't say an artificial habitat, but stacking the deck in your favor. And there are so many of these little hacks that I've, I've picked up over the years. One of which for like my region, like I'm, I'm from Connecticut. So Northern forest, you know, cutting trees, almost halfway through or slightly more than halfway through just leaving them standing so they are dead standing and then you can process them later on a lot of people only think in the short term you know and they they're not doing things like that like that's an amazing hack you know if you're truly interested in survival and long-term skills you gotta you've really got to stack the deck in your favor like you said i mean is there anything else that you can think of for the the average listener like hey um you know, in their, their backyard, in their neighborhood, uh, maybe they have land, maybe they don't. Like, do you have three hacks that you could give people that they're just not thinking of? No, because it would depends on bioregionalism. <laughs> sure, sure. It depends on where you're living. I've hacked where I live because I know where I'm living. And I've spent enough time watching nature to know what's in my area, what's not, what it does, what mm -hmm. it doesn't do, and how to exploit that. So really, if you're talking, which you seem to be are, more of a home base, someone needs to understand the environment they're living in to hack it. You can't hack what you don't understand. So that, that, that is just more field time or studying or learning or whatever and finding out, okay, I live in the woods outside of Seattle, Washington. I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. 
I'm very good in my area with what I need, with where I am. Um, but I don't know what other people might need, but if they can just follow, follow the rules of human survival, you know, it's like if you don't know where your food's coming from, that's a problem. If you don't know where your water's coming from, that's a problem. If you don't know where your heat's coming from, that's a problem. If you don't know how to cool yourself, that's a problem. If you don't have basic communications, that's a problem. If you don't have basic hygiene standards and know how to dictate that with limited water, that's a problem. If you don't know how to, where to put your poop or your pee, that's a problem. So if you look at what you are as a human being day in and day out that we all take for granted because it's done on grid power and we don't have to think about it, then not thinking about it's a problem. And like you said earlier on, the younger generations or so, that's a problem. I have some good kids in my courses, but there's many more out there and a plenty of adults. They haven't even thought one iota about basic common sense self-reliance skills, and that's a problem. It's a problem for the last time I did the research, it was been five years or so. The Red Cross, I believe, did a statistical thing where they asked a bunch of households, you know, do you feel prepared? for whatever emergency, hurricane, tornado, or whatever. And I think 6 to 7% of Americans they interviewed said that they feel somewhat prepared. So how many hundreds of millions? We're over 300 million people or whatever. Yeah, like 320. Yeah, and obviously they didn't interview everyone in the United States of America. But one, America is very bad for being too dependent on the grid for being lacking in gratitude, for being spoiled, for wanting good internet all the time, or, or whatever you want to say it, compared to developing nations for sure. But we're also losing the skills that we're talking about to such a rate that the question you just asked me, if you'd asked my grandparents that question, they'd have just looked at you funny like, what the fuck, dude? What are you? <laughs> You're asking me what I think about what I do on this homestead every yeah. day? And that's not, and it brings up an important point is, you know, <clears throat> maybe we just need to get back to understanding more about what the human body needs and making sure our families have a reasonable amount of supplies or know where to get what the human body needs. And it's not just toilet paper, right? <laughs> so now your home said you're raising animals? No, I'm not raising animals and I'm not raising food because like we talked about earlier before before this, food is in vegetables, before we had this interview, yeah. it, it's too much time for me right now. So what I am doing is I'm having a thermoregulated controlled environment. I'm having a house that heats and cools itself that doesn't need any, even to burn wood. I'm having an alternative power supply. I'm looking at other water supplies. I'm dialing in different things to run on alternative sources of power other than they already have because um, I'm sunshine dependent. I don't like that because I, I read this crazy thing. You know, I'm a Viking fan, not the football team per se, but on some, I think it was on BBC, said it, 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 in one title to this article, it had the word Viking and apocalypse in the same. I said, well, shit, I'm reading that, you know, like the Vikings figured out the apocalypse. OK, I'm in. And so I read it and they found these ruins somewhere in Scandinavia that dictated um, when they think this massive super volcano went off and they were calling it the Great Winter when there was a lot of famine. 
because there was so much soot up in the air that the solar radiation was so lame that a lot of Viking people died. And they found the runic knowledge of this event back in time. Now, mind you, this is the same day. We have a streaming service. I don't watch TV, but we, we have a streaming service. There was a special, PBS Nova. I like PBS. They're probably the last semblance of quality television. And I like the Nova specials. This was an old one. It was about super volcanoes. And on the same day I read the Viking Apocalyptic article, they found a bunch of dead people in London when they were excavating for this building. They found mass graves. They were all buried together, dead women, dead men, dead kids. And when they did analysis on the bones, these weren't Black Plague deaths. These were before the Black Plague. So they wondered, why in the hell are all these dead people buried in clearly mass graves, which is a sign of duress, right? We got a lot of dead. Yeah, we're doing we, it now. We got to get rid of them yeah, now. New, New York is doing it on some island. Like there's mass graves. They just have no room for people. Absolutely. Yeah. So it happens when people are in crisis and there's too many dead people. Bottom line, long story short, they died from the same super volcano that took out a bunch of the Vikings. They found some old priest text about the great winter where there wasn't enough solar radiation and a lot of the lower socioeconomic class died of malnutrition and starvation. And um, then they tracked and found the volcano. Where was which it? I, I forget it was some place near Sri Lanka, I bet, or some, some semi-tropical place that was a monster volcano. And they did that because they found ash in the North and the South Pole and dated it, blah, blah, blah. Very interesting special. Now, my reason for bringing that up is I'm on solar. So here I, in the same day, I had these two epiphany, epiphany events about one, my ancestors and two people in London, I believe it was the 1200s, mass deaths. These are only two cultures that we know wrote this shit down that affected the entire world because it was an equatorial volcano. And that's why the dust went north and southern hemisphere. Normally, if it's in one hemisphere, it'll stay there and occlude the sunlight in that hemisphere. This was both. And I thought, my whole life is on solar, right? If I don't have any sun for a while, I don't chart. And you can think of the, the, the stuff that was going through my head. And a friend of mine said, Cody, you're fucking nuts, man. If you're dealing with how to deal with no sun, dude, you're over the edge. You got to stop. But I'm a survival instructor. That's what I do. So I've been working and tweaking on some things. So there's always something to do on a homestead. But you're right. My Achilles heel right now is I'm not raising any food because like we talked about before, I don't have the time yeah. to do that right now. A lot of people don't realize how time-consuming homesteading is. Like, there are all these people that are coming from the city, going to the suburbs. They're buying farms, and they're raising chickens. And then suddenly, they're selling their chickens, or they're trying to sell all the homesteading gear that they thought they were going to need, and they, they had in this beautiful fantasy, and they realize how much work it is, and they can't live in both of those worlds. Like, you're living in that homestead, but you're enjoying the process. And there are so many people that aren't willing to do that because they won't let go of the other life. You know what I mean? Like it's... But you, and you can blend. I'm blending. I'm here right now on a podcast. But 
One, you're right. People don't realize how hard being self-reliant is. And I mean hard as regarding the time it takes, not so much the money that needs to be spent. And most people look at survival training as a what if. For me, it's my lifestyle. I don't have a different life I go to. My, my day job is how I live my life. It's how I think. It's how I plan. It's my operational modus operandi. It's, it's who I am. So I'm lucky in that respect. A lot of survival training, unfortunately, is reactionary. It's fear-based. It's, and I'm, I'm not saying it's not important to be prepared, but there's a lot of, uh, there's the articles, you've probably read them too. A lot of the ultra-rich have their getaway compounds now. Now, a lot of the ultra-rich are heavily connected to, I'm sure, some politicians who have stuff that they're sure as hell not telling us. So there's a lot of very wealthy people that are going to extreme lengths to have a survival compound for when the shit hits the fan, they will go there. Now, I find that interesting, right? Sure, yeah, just go there. But think of the lack of mindset, right? Now, someone, people are not mentally prepared to live the lifestyle they spent $5 million to produce. What I'm getting at is if we can have a more self-reliant objective and lifestyle to begin with, whether it's recycling stuff or eating better or having an exercise program, little stuff. It doesn't need to be the zombie apocalypse. Most people don't even do that. So in the real world, everything's connected. You wiggle one bit of the spider web, the whole thing shakes. Most people's survival training is reactionary. That is only half adequate. It doesn't mean you have to be an apocalyptic doomsday freak to live your lifestyle. It just means you need to be conscious and understand what your family needs to live. Make sure they have that. Make sure to be able to improvise that and have that humility and gratitude for what we do have and realize that, you know, we're, we're all in the same boat. I wish we would cooperate more. I know people, and I won't mention their name. Um, it's someone that's known by millions of people out there, unfortunately, who told me one day, in all seriousness, I don't, I'm not learning, I don't really need to learn survival skills because the skill I have, I'm just going to come take your shit. That's a true parasite. I, was a, I have a few Native American friends in town here with the Yavapai Indian tribes, and one of them was describing some, you know, the code, because that's what they call me, there's a parasite and there's a true parasite. A parasite, when the host dies or leaves, the parasite can continue to function. The true parasite dies when the host dies. And this person's military training, instead of helping other people and being useful, was going to go hurt other people and take their shit. And that's why this person felt they didn't need to prepare. Now, that's a slap in the face for the military that trained that person to begin with in a blasphemy and, and, and just a real insult to self-reliant training. The reason I bring that up is it's true. And there's people like that out there, which I'm, you know, again, I'm not opposed to firearms. There's people that will do nasty shit when they run out of stuff. But to hear that come from someone so honestly and so to my face to fully admit the cowardice of that action and to, to not 
use that training that the military paid to, per to train this person. To protect his country. To protect, protect his people. country, yeah. to protect yeah. other people, to protect themselves, and to be a responsible American was a travesty. Damn. I mean, I, I wonder now, like, the apocalypse is such a catch term. And up until this year, I, I always thought like, oh, it won't be a pandemic. Well, we saw the pandemic. And then we hear about murder hornets and all this crazy shit. You mentioned the volcano. Like, do you think it's going to be Mammoth Mountain? Like, do you have a, do you have an opinion on like, if there is going to be this apocalypse? Yeah, I hesitated to bring that up. Because yeah, it's like, I I'm always the glass half full guy, but I'm also a survival instructor. Um, how do I think that whatever apocalypse is going to happen... I don't know. That's my main answer. But um, we are clearly not sustainable. We're not sustainable, especially not in this country. I know how we can be more sustainable. Like we talked about even insulation or mm -hmm. there's so many things that we can do as a country and as a culture to do more with less. You don't have to be a roll in the dirt hippie to do it. But, you know, pass a solar design or there, there's... There's ways to create structures that give back instead of just take. So we're our own demise. We're like the cockroaches that won't go away. And unless we change, and the problem is I don't think we will, because Americans especially, we don't conserve until we're down to our last roll of toilet paper. And I've been using that metaphor a lot longer than COVID-19. And the reason that I think, I don't want to say we're screwed. I have great hope in people. I have great hope in people that will do the right thing. And there's also people that won't. I'm hoping to help keep alive the people that are leaders that will do the right thing. But when you have a gross domestic product that rules our country, our entire self-worth as a nation is based on how much crap we can make and how we can get to buy it. Think about that. That's, that's a parasitic economy. It's not about, I'm, I'm not saying that we, we, can't, we shouldn't be making money. We all need to make money. But the gross domestic product, the GDP, what I hear on the radio every day, it's good, it's bad. It's all about making more stuff, consuming more stuff, and getting people to buy it. That's not sustainable. And when you have something that's not sustainable, it means there's an end run. And whoever's left without the chair when the music stops, unfortunately, you know, I, I, I don't have kids and, and, and hopefully won't. It's not my cup of tea. But we might be fine, but our kids, our grandkids or whatever, and that's not how Native cultures typically thought. There was a holistic thing where we need to look out for our future. We're not, you know. Think about the entire United States policy mm -hmm. is about making stuff and selling stuff. It's not about making our, you know, us healthier. It's not, a, and I'm, I'm not. I don't mean to mean to be sound like I'm ragging on the government. I'm just, I'm stating a fact. You know, it's, it's all about making stuff and making money, and that's not sustainable because there's only so much stuff you can take to make other stuff with to sell someone. That's a mindset problem. And here we go back into resourcefulness and yeah. conservation. Like any good survival instructor needs to be super resourceful. Any good survival instructor needs to be way into conservation of resources because absence of resources is what kills. So knowing what I know about modern survival and primitive skills and urban preparedness, to me, there's no missing. It's all one. There's all a continuity there. 
I know how to manage my money. I look at the financial system for what it is, a fucking Ponzi scheme for the most part. I know what resources are important, apparently toilet paper, more than I ever thought. I know what to buy, what not to buy. It's not because I'm so smart as I pay attention to nature. I look at what tribes have done in the past. I look at world history and the crises that have happened and how we're handling this one. And because I've done with less in the field for so many years, I know pain is a great teacher. And I know if I put you out in the woods with just your clothes on your back, pain would tell you what you needed to do first. The priorities of survival would be very apparent. You don't need an instructor to realize when you're feeling pain. Because I felt pain so much, and I know the priorities, I love... Uh, I love being prepared, obviously, but it's, it's really, in a way, so simple, in a way, as well. It's the human mind and the human consumption and the human greed and the human ego and the human ignorance and the whatever that gets in the way. The needs and the wants are vastly different, and I lecture about this on certain courses of mine. The needs are usually very simplistic, fairly cheap, and usually fairly easy to obtain, and that depends on a lot of variables that we can't talk about because we don't know what your listeners' situations yeah. are. Yeah. But the wants are what really hurts Americans in particular. You know, and, and uh, I, loved, I love my life. I love being alive. And I'm grateful to be sharing my opinion on this podcast. Um, and I do have concerns, you know, for our country and whatever. But maybe COVID-19 will be a wake-up call about what's important and what families need and what people need to protect themselves and thus protect other people. And I say this, I'll say it, I've said it many times, I'll say it once again. The more better off everyone's prepared in your tribe, whether they're part of your tribe or part of the bigger tribe, the less likely they are be to come and rip off your shit. So I wish we were all more on the same page and all really bought into being responsibly self-reliant that's what I grew up with. I grew up with grandparents that went through the Depression, that lived in South Dakota, that taught me through example about homesteading and canning and, being, and doing good on the neighbor and making sure your neighbor was okay and always having extra stuff in case your neighbor didn't get home from the blizzard and whatever. They were good people. They were good country people that taught me a lot about just doing good, you know, about being responsible. In South Dakota, back in the day, if you weren't equipped, now they'd call him a prepper. If you said to my grandpa, my grandma, here, you got a lot of prepping stuff here, they'd just look at you and go, what the hell are you talking about? Because we have this gear, for lack of a better term, they were just responsible people in rural South Dakota. Look what's happened now. Someone that prepares, they're a paranoid doomsday freak, right? We've, we've lost this basic thing that's made our nation unique and self-reliant. We were built on self-reliance, right? That's what the United States of America was built on. Where's that gone? Hopefully it's coming back. Hopefully it's coming back. And if it takes COVID-19 to instill people, even if it's through fear, hopefully through wanting to make a life change, hey, honey, it sucks being dependent. Let's try to be more self-reliant great yeah. but let's do it with a positive mindset if at all possible yeah it's a damn good feeling i always tell people like leave your house with a swiss army knife in your pocket a lighter in the other pocket when people ask hey does someone have a knife it should feel good when you're the only person in the room that can 
prove I'm more ready than everyone else. By the way, you should be ready too. It just takes a small investment to, to give yourself that capability. You know, like I think we need more of that. And I think you hit the nail right on the head. Um, brother, I know your time's valuable. I know you got a lot to do. Uh, tell us, tell everyone here where they can find you, what you're up to. Um, tell us about yourself. Um, my school is the Aboriginal Living Skills School. I started in 1991 here in sunny Prescott, Arizona. I teach primitive living skills, quote-unquote bushcrafting, urban preparedness, and modern survival. They're all s different. They're all different contexts. I have field courses from two days to nine days, give keynotes, whatever, been doing it for a long time. Um, my website is www.codylundin.com. That's C O D Y. L-U-N-D-I-N. Most of my courses are almost done for the season. I typically teach from April to uh, October, except for winter survival. But I'll be offering my new courses online on my website October. Every October, I announce the new coming year season, in this case for 2021. And hopefully uh, COVID will, will give us a break. All right, guys. Uh, this is Kevin Estella with Fieldcraft Survival. Uh, Cody Lundin, our guest today. Thank you, Cody, for doing everything that you do. And, you know, definitely uh, keep doing what you do because I think it's really valuable. I think America needs this. And uh, for everyone out there, keep training and keep listening.